Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. So the way that the curriculum is built would make it seem that maths is more important than rape culture. And I'm not sure it is. Um, so and the, the horrible, the horrible and very serious statistic is I imagine a young woman is much more likely to be the victim of sexual assault than she is to use trigonometry. Yeah. So um, where, where is that reflected in the syllabus? Hello and welcome to The World As It Should Be, a podcast in which we ask our guests to tell us what they would change to help create their perfect world. By listening to what they'd like to change, we'll hear more about who they are, what they do and what inspires them. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind Prima Donna, a uniquely anarchic and joyous festival of everything creative. My name is Shona Abianka and I'm a book publicist working with some of the most thought-provoking authors writing today. I'm Catherine Riley, a writer and director of the festival. We're delighted to be your guides on this podcast adventure. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. Juno Dawson is a writer, actor and activist, best known for her YA novels, including Clean, Meat Market and most recently Wonderland. Juno has also written best-selling non-fiction, including the LGBTQ Guide, This Book is Gay and The Gender Games, The Problem with Men and Women from Someone Who Has Been Both. In her podcast, So I Got to Thinking, Juno rewatches classic episodes from Sex and the City before attempting to answer Carrie Bradshaw's questions for the modern day. Today, she's answering our questions on creating the world as it should be. We're thrilled to welcome Juno to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, actually, let's start with your podcast since, we, um, since we've mentioned it in the intro. How, how did that come about? What's the thinking behind it? Are you a big Sex and the City fan? Yeah. And do you know what it was? It really was that when I met Dylan Jones, Dylan B. Jones, not not GQ Dylan Jones, the other Dylan Jones, I think, you know, when you just meet someone and you just know that we are going to be really amazing friends. And we met backstage at Brighton Pride, I think in like 2017. And I was just like, we are just going to be really good friends. And I think we were kind of looking for an excuse to spend more time together And Dylan suggested he knew that we both loved Sex and the City. And he was like, would you like to do a podcast where we just rewatch Sex and the City and just talk about the episodes? And I said yes, because I wanted to hang out with Dylan. But I thought there was more to it. I thought there was more to be done. And I thought, given that I'm a trans woman and Dylan is a gay man, I was like, what if we attempt to answer Carrie's questions using the experiences that we've had, because obviously Carrie answers her questions with the experience she and her friends have had. And and so that's kind of where it stemmed from. And, and, you know, the first season was quite quiet. I don't really know if anybody was listening. And the second series got more popular. And then all of a sudden in the third series, it just went huge. And and now... (laughs) It's still it's still what we thought it was going to be, which is a chance for us to just hang out and talk about sex in the city. But um, but now we, we have thousands and thousands of listeners, which is quite perturbing. And um, listening to our <laughs> actual rantings at some point, and now of course we've got this brand new series of Sex in the City, and we, we're going to cover yeah. we're going to cover the new episodes as well. So it feels kind of like we never anticipated being quite as on the forefront of pop culture as we've become, but. Oh well, well, we didn't know. Did, <laughs> yeah. so, did you anticipate how many things you would find 
interesting about Carrie's questions. I mean, I was listening to one episode this morning actually about friendships and soulmates and, you know, it kind of made it really clear that it's very universal, whatever sexuality, whatever background. Yeah. It, you know, it seemed to resonate with both of you. Yeah, I think we sort of knew that broadly Sex and the City raised a lot of feminist points. But interestingly, in six seasons of Sex and the City, no one ever says the word feminism or feminist, um, which is mind-blowing. But you sort of forget that in the sort of like the late 90s, early noughties, feminism was a really dirty word. It had become something quite sort of cloistered, quite academic. It certainly wasn't something that was applied to sassy young women living in Manhattan, you know, even though the money you spend and the choices you make as a woman are inherently feminist. Um, And so it was a way really for us to, I guess, look at some of the subtext of the things that Carrie was saying and drawing out the conversations for 2021 where, you know, I, I don't think as a as a group, we're, we're not scared to call it what it is. We're not scared to call it feminism. And nor are we scared to call out elements of pop culture from the past that were problematic. You know, that there are elements of sex in the city that are homophobic and racist yeah. and transphobic. And so we're not scared to call those out as well because by looking at the past, we can learn things about the present, I think, and, and see how far we've come. Mm. Do you think... What do you anticipate from the new series? Do you think there will be more? I mean, it's post Me Too. I mean, I'm, I'm not asking you for any spoilers or anything, but it's post Me Too. We're in, we're, as you say, we're in a really different time now. Feminism is, particularly among younger women, is is not. It was not a shameful word. It's not the F word that everyone was dodging, like in the 90s yeah. when people, the Spice Girls were, and the Ladette culture was there. What do you anticipate there will be more in your face feminism? Do you know, I think there will, because I think there has to be. I mean, I would put, I've not seen, as of this moment, I've not seen anything. I've not, I've only read the spoilers that everybody else has. Um, I would put good money on there being an episode about cancel culture. Like, I right mm. now, here is my five pounds. I'm going to slide it across the internet towards you. Because, <laughs> you know, Carrie would have been cancelled now. Mm. Like, if she'd written that column she wrote about bi- bisexuals, in 2021 she would have been cancelled because it was really biphobic um and so I think that will be discussed what I hope it doesn't do is I hope it remembers to tell a story because actually people talking about identity politics is boring and Mm. I think I I love the L word so much I you know it was part of my sort of early adulthood was the L word and I love it but L word generation Q Oh my god! Mm. I got into a whole rabbit hole because I was I was I was having a crisis of confidence about my own decisions, my own like feelings about it because I just thought this is fucking shit. What generation Q? Gen Q, yes, and specifically the second series of Gen Q. And then I went on. There's a whole thing online of people like, "What is the showrunner doing? Fire this woman! It's terrible. They're trying to touch on. They're trying to be so." Uh, they're touching on so many issues that they forgot to write a storyline or a plot. It's yeah. just mad. I thought that was worse than series one. So I actually hmm. preferred series two because it felt a bit oh, soapier. Really? And the L word right. was best when it was a big old soap. I've, I've always course. said that the L word yeah. is very soapy. I thought series one was excruciating. The bet running for mayor on a liberal <laughs> ticket. 
was was <laughs> I found quite painful. Whereas I quite like I, I always think the L word God, this is such a diversion. The L word works best when it's just Jennifer Beals talking about the art world. I well, love it. yes, so they they reprised that mm-hmm. like Jennifer Beals emoting at a piece of art <laughs> with her eyes filled, <laughs> limpid eyes filling with tears. That was the most funny thing in the whole of the first series mm-hmm. of uh, you know the original L word. They obviously just kind of like, well, that really worked. We'll just do more that again. That, please, do- yes, more, more <laughs> of her having Sorry. a numinous experience around art. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you think? Every- I mean, I haven't watched the L word. Do you think everyone should watch it? Why would you recommend? that someone like me watches it, for example. Um, don't, don't. Well, that's such a difficult question because my feelings about the L word are so tied up with the fact that I was 23 years old when it started yeah. and I was living in the L word. My life was basically, I, I just got to Brighton. I was out all the time. I was drunk all the time. All my friends were sleeping with each other. And then there was this show which somewhat felt like it was speaking to my experience, even yeah. more than Queer as Folk did, to be honest. And... And so I can't, I can't honestly can't tell you if that show is good or not. But what yes. I will tell you is that it really reflects the period of my life. Yeah. So I, I have really, really fond feelings about it, but I, I agree. It's some of it. I remember even at the time when I watched it, I was like, this is absolute shit. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, it was compulsive and I couldn't stop, you know, and I've, I've watched it more than once, you know, since I watched mm-hmm. it. We used to all watch it together. We used to go around people's houses and watch mm. it as a group and shout at the TV or laugh at the TV. With Jenny Schechter. Just enjoy, like enjoy the cult of Jenny Schechter. <laughs> yeah. I was, yeah, it was a put down. One of my friends used to put me down by calling me Jenny Schechter. Oh, I'm a writer. She used to use that line, you're a writer, you crave experience as a, as a way of mocking <laughs> I'm going to have to watch it now. <laughs> anyway, that's a massive diversion. Sorry, that was very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> you should watch it, Shona. I will. Um, yes, right. Uh, what are you, let's move on to your writing, okay. Juno. What What are you working on at the moment? Um, how did, how did, Wonderland got brilliant reception, oh. your, your reworking of the Alison Alice story. Um, what's next? And and yeah, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm, still, I'm still on Wonderland because I'm now adapting it for television. Um, oh, wow! Which is it's, it's the biggest undertaking I've ever I've ever ever done. So I'm not really allowed to go into spoilers, but it's it is. More, Are you allowed to tell us when when it's coming? I don't. I honestly don't know. So like, t- TV is so uncertain. So all I can say yeah. for certain is that I have written the script and they are reading the script and we are working on the script. Maybe it will happen next year. Maybe it will happen the year after next. Maybe it will never happen. Um, in terms of what I can definitely tell you is going to happen, um, next year I make my first official foray into adult fiction. Oh, I've always brilliant. written teenagers. Mm. And my first adult novel is called Her Majesty's Royal Coven. It's, it's what I worked on during the first lockdown. I wrote it through 2020. And it's basically, my husband said to me, when I just couldn't write at the start of the pandemic, I was just in my flop era. Mm. And he was like, look, if you could write anything, what would it be? And I was like, I want to do like the X-Men, but they're witches. <laughs> and he was like, well, then you should do the X-Men, but they're witches. And, and thus, thus, her Majesty's Royal Coven was born. So it's brilliant. Um, I remember you talking about this at the Prima Donna Festival and the audience were just so intrigued by this whole plot. I hope people like it. It's really audacious. I wanted to create something like, like Marvel movie big, which is something that novels, you know, sometimes, and I love writing, writing genre because I think 
there's there's much less snobbery when you're writing genre. You know, you can have a book like Game of Thrones where you've got wizards and dragons and nobody bats an eyelid. Nobody's going to shame you for having fantastical mm. elements. But I think with with the novel, like capital T, capital N, often it's about, you know, the minute details and creating these very small, involved kind of worlds. Her Majesty's Royal Coven is not that. <laughs> it's like a big, epic fantasy. Um, and I hope, yeah, my, my big fear is that people will come to it thinking it's going to be like, kind of like Sally Rooney or something, because it's it's so not a Sally Rooney-like novel. It's, it's way more Game of Thrones than it is Sally Rooney. Amazing. I hope. Brilliant. If, if it sells a fraction of either of those books, I will be delighted. Yeah, quite. Um, it's coming out <laughs> next July, so there's a little there's a little wait, but proofs have just so gone perfect out. summer read, holiday read. I hope so. Proofs have just gone out, so I'm shitting myself because this is it. People are reading it now. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't like it. It's horrible. It's a horrible yeah. feeling. It's the worst. Does that get easier? No, it... it gets worse. <laughs> Especially, <laughs> it feels like the stakes are really high this time, with it being sort of my first. Yeah, which is mad. Well, Catherine will have this next year. Catherine's debut novel is out next year. Oh, yeah. just letting everyone know. Yeah, we'll thanks. obviously be interviewing her on the podcast. Mm. <laughs> it's very, just very me, better. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I regret the whole thing. No, now. it's it's, anyway. it's 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 tricky actually. And being being a debut is uniquely strange. Um, I, I wish. Yeah, I, I think I'm a big advocate. There should be media training for debut authors. It's really difficult. You know, you are if you were a pop star or an actor. You know, some some media bod would sit you down and explain to you kind of how how it all works. But as an author, unless you unless you speak to other authors, you know, I remember with my debut, which is it's ten years ago now. You know, I was kind of I felt so deflated. You know, I'd worked for so long so so long four or five years to get an agent to get a publisher to finally do the edits and then see the book come out and like just nothing really happens <laughs> it's just like right. an, an, oh, yeah huge I think media training I'm an I agree with you I'm a huge advocate of media training especially for certain books and certain authors um when you know and in this day and age actually with social media mm. I think it's especially important and just a real expectation management around it as well around kind of like what to expect and what not to expect and yeah and it, and it it works it's difficult both ways I wasn't even you know the, when the gender games came out in 2017 you know I thought I'd been around the block and I thought I knew it all but I was not ready for the media that came with the gender games and mm. stories poking into my private life and you know details about my parents leaking into the press and stuff and it, it was it was wow. deeply unpleasant um, mm, and it was only wow. afterwards that I was speaking with Catelyn Moran and Damien Barr and they were like, oh my gosh, yes, there should be a support group for autobiographies yeah. because right. an autobiography is a very different experience to any of my novels. Yeah. Gosh, that's really interesting. So when you said with your first book, it came out and then you just felt like it was a massive anticlimax. Oh my God, it's such an anticlimax. It, nothing happened. That's it was just like, oh. Oh, right. there we go then. <laughs> Done. So we just it's out there in the world and then you just sit and wait for the royalties checks. That-, <laughs> that would be a fine thing. And we're, we're yet to see a royalty check for that title. Um, but it is, um, and that's part of the thing as well. I think, you know, you see in the press, you see the authors who are flying. You see Sally mm. Rooney and you see Margaret Atwood. And, you, you know, you what you don't see is that the vast majority of books kind of just come out to very little fanfare. You get if you get some reviews, you're doing really well. Um, mm. But I remember that's that's where my little release day routine comes from. 
So what right. I do is on a release day, because the rest of the world, by and large, just the world keeps turning. Some people might tweet at you about your book, but like a book isn't like a film. People don't rush out and read your book the day it comes out in the way that they would a movie. You know, they might buy it and then take it on holiday in six months time. Um, so what I do on release day, I take myself to the nearest bookshop, see if they've got a copy in stock, just go, go and touch it, go touch it in the wild, and then just go take myself <laughs> for a nice lunch. You know, I hope you sign it. I do. Oh, yes. Sometimes, yeah, if, if, right. if there's a little bunch, I will always sign. I'll always sign them as well. But um, That's lovely. That's a really great plan. That's, you have yeah, to do like it for yourself because by and large, yeah. the rest of the world doesn't care, <laughs> it's, it's, which is what I wish, I wish, it's yeah. what I wish I'd known in 2012, kind of. Right. Yeah. And it's such a solitary thing, writing, isn't it? And then mm -hmm. suddenly... And still, it still remains a solitary thing from what you're describing, even when even when the, the public facing aspects. Yeah, of it the, is there are there. moments, you know, the so like it's, you know, next week I'm going on tour. I've got a Christmas book out this year, so I'm going on tour next week um, around Edinburgh, Glasgow and London. So that's nice. That makes it feel like mm. more of an event. Um, but even things like releasing a cover can feel like an event. So I just think it's mm. I think a really good publicist once told me to just celebrate the moments. And th there are lots of little moments. With, with a novel lots of little opportunities to celebrate and if you're not going to celebrate them who else will it's, it's your Absolutely. it's your book baby kind of yeah yeah so with your first book um like talk us through your journeys from teaching to writer being an, a, an established writer as you are yeah. now um I was a primary school teacher I taught mm. year six um and we we know with young adult fiction we always aim it at this kind of mythical 14 year old but we know that much younger children and considerably older adults read YA as well. And so the 11-year-olds in my class were just bringing in these novels. And I, I was teaching at the, the real golden age of young adult fiction with Knots and Crosses by Mallory Blackman and um, Twilight. The Hunger Games mm -hmm. was about to rise into its dominance kind of. And, and I was borrowing these books from the kids in my class and I was just really struck by how varied young adult fiction can be. It completely defies any notion of genre. You know, mm. all those books I just mentioned would be kept in the same part of the bookshop, even though, you know, they're very, very different titles. Um, and I really liked that. I really liked that. I've never felt limited other than, you know, the, the age of my characters needs to be 17 or 18 years old. Otherwise I can do whatever I want. And, you know, I've, mm. I've written horror and I've done love stories and I've done sort of fantastical things. Um, so that was when I started writing and, and I wanted a project for the summer holidays, really. I remember I was living by myself in Brighton. And of course, when you're a teacher, you're very lucky to get this big six week holidays, but of course the rest of your friends are all working. So, so I really wanted something to do with the summer holidays. And I think probably it was about 2008. Mm. And, um, and so I set myself a little goal, you know, I, I'd never really finished anything, um, had that not been a long-term dream of yours to write a book? It's strange. So my dream had been to act. But when I look back now with hindsight, actually what I was doing constantly was writing. So when, when I was a kid, I would write kind of fan fiction of Doctor Who um, for my grandma. Um, I would write and write and write little surp operas. I loved this surp opera called Sunset Beach that was on Channel 5. So, I, you know, I would, I would write my own scripts for Sunset Beach. So it's what we would now call fan fiction. But at the time, we just didn't have a term for it. It was just crazy. <laughs> it was basically, um, it was just the insane <laughs> things I did in my bedroom. Um, and so um, 
But so it's really strange that I thought I wanted to act, but actually where I was happiest was was writing fiction. Um, and, and I wrote for the, the university newspaper as well. Um, so it was always there. The evidence all points to me being a writer, but I just didn't think that working class kids from Bradford could get book deals. I thought it was a very like a posh thing. You know, I think you had to go to Oxford or Cambridge or something. <laughs> and often that is true to this day. Yeah. But um, I, in in that summer of 2008, I realised that mere mortals do have access to the publishing industry, that agents are always looking for new talent because if agents don't have authors, they're not going to make any money. So, so if an agent thinks they can make money off your book, then, then of course they're going to take you on as a client. Um, so I, at the time I joined a writing community that was called Latopia, that was an online writing forum. Um, I believe it still exists in some form. And um, I kind of trained myself at home on how to be a professional writer, you know, how to submit your work to agents, how to prepare a manuscript to, you know, there are, there's lots of kind of business rules, you know, mm. it's, it's not as simple as, you know, oh, I wrote this book on loose sheets of paper and put them in a box you know that's not going to fly and so um and so yeah I, I guess I sort of trained myself at home and and between working on Hollow Pike and kind of learning about the industry I was eventually able to secure an agent and the rest was history. Amazing um shall we move on to should we move on to your three things do you know uh to, to, to change the world mm-hmm. um so let's take them one at a time um, and let's start with your first idea about PHSE. Yeah. So PSHE is personal social and health education. That includes all kinds of things from like drugs and alcohol awareness to sex education and citizenship and issues around that. Um, It is mandatory. It is supposed to be taught in all schools, but usually provision is a little bit patchy. And for example, I think some faith schools can still opt out of certain elements as well. And there's no specialist. Is it right that there that you don't that you don't qualify as a PHSE teacher? Like the geography teacher can do it, or that you know that so so often it can be delivered by people that don't necessarily want to teach it, <laughs> mm-hmm. or you know they they've kind of got they drew the short straw short straw in the in the staff room. I imagine how that's how it works. Um, so that, that that you know there is an element of specialism there that has to be thought through. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, and that's part of why provision is so patchy because some right. schools have amazing PSHE teachers teachers mm. and others just get the PE teacher to do it <laughs> during a free period mm. kind of yeah and that is I would yeah. imagine there's also some parental some parents may not feel comfortable having their child I mean I don't really have cultural religious reasons that, so that's quite a tricky one to navigate it is officially and by law every child has to receive sex education in terms of literally the birds and the bees because actually that mm. falls under the science curriculum Um, So how a baby is made and how a baby is born is on the science curriculum and people have got to know that. You can't opt out of that. So this this is an axe that I have been grinding to a toothpick since 2012 or before when I I first started to develop my platform away from being a teacher as a writer. Um, Unlike any education secretary I could care to mention. I was on the front line as a teacher and there is something so simple that we could do in schools to improve the general well-being of 
young people and therefore adults slash the workforce. And, and that is to scrap one maths lesson a week and introduce a mandatory hour of PSHE in schools every single week. Because that hour, you could just do so much. Um, you could look at mental health. You could look at sex education. We could talk about rape culture and consent. We could talk about extremism. We could talk about incel culture or feminism, misogyny online. Um Oh my gosh, we could cover so so much, mm. like so many of the things that we're seeing. Um, and I think I think you know we're only seeing the beginning of issues around the far right. And I, I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, you know, because the press won't name these things for what they are. They will not call misogyny terrorism. Mm. And so even though we've seen multiple terrorist incidents in America which have been driven by misogyny. And the media is very reluctant to call these people misogynist killers or incel killers. Um, and I just think that the, the, there's a fundamental flaw, I think. So when, while I was teaching, so bear in mind, I was only in the classroom for seven years from, mm. I think, from about 22 to 29 or something. And during that time, I almost saw three eras of philosophy of teaching in that time. The first one was kind of the Blairite education, 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 numeracy hour and literacy hour. Every day you did an hour of maths and an hour of English and you were literally timed. Like you were given a 10 minute structure for your lesson for, you know, mental maths, then do some this and then do some of this. And it was very prescribed. Yeah. And then under Gordon Brown, um, very short lived. But during that period, there was this sort of new dawn of creativity, which was, no, 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 we don't want automatons. We actually, we believe industry is telling us we need creative thinkers, people who can solve problems, people who can look at things that have gone wrong and work out how best to fix them. And the way we think you should do that is by almost giving children mysteries and telling them to solve mysteries. And it was super fun. And it was really interesting as a teacher to stop seeing yourself as a jug of knowledge that, mm. you know, that just fills children up with facts and figures and actually saying, right, ancient Egyptians, where do we begin? You know, and then almost leaving the kids to figure out how yeah. to learn it. And helping them understand yeah. by asking why rather than just parrot fashion. Totally, learning. yeah. And sort of getting them very sort of, sort of physically involved as well and looking at the different ways in which we learn. Um and then things went full circle under under the coalition government and beyond, which has really been about just driving standards at all costs and actually kind of competing with the kind of standards that you would see in kind of like the Far East in South Korea or China, which kind of skips over the fact that, you know, children who are hothoused in that way tend to have very poor mental health and very high rates of suicide and very high rates of self-harm and anxiety and depression. And and I think that's, you know, only been exacerbated by the pandemic where, you know, young people have kind of been expected to maintain standards while mm. being taught by their parents or via Zoom, you know, which, which is mad. Um, and so I, I just think the way we teach, we just need a rethink. And I think the best way to do it would be to put more of an emphasis on PSHE. And, and I believe from what I saw as a teacher that well-adjusted children make for well-adjusted learners. Uh, and actually, you know, 
if you mm. can develop that relationship with your class whereby you are you've created a safe space where everything can be talked about when nothing is off the table then that you can do some incredibly productive learning and i always said if i could teach the entire curriculum through the medium of sex education every kid in my class would have got level 5s because we we at my school where i taught you we tended to do sex ed for like a two week block in year 6 and during that two week attendance was 100% no yeah. child was sick and you could hear a pin drop because mm. they realized that they were in a place where they could ask those difficult questions that had really been troubling them and they weren't mm. obscene questions or rude questions it was just troubleshooting the things they didn't get like yeah and they were relevant to their own lives which makes a hundred percent and like the things the the pl- like tr- like myth busting the playground rumors that heard mm. like without a doubt every single year there was this big question where somebody would bravely say i don't understand what a vibrator is <laughs> and and you're like well yeah because it's so ab- it's so abstract like it's like like a bit like an electric toothbrush but not like i i i don't get it and and so this idea you know you sort of this this moment when you realize when you taught them that you know oh by the way sex is pleasurable and it feels nice and just like oh hmm. right. and it's not a dirty word and it's not a dirty word yeah and so i just i just think that would that would if on the day that i made supreme being supreme ruler <laughs> grand high witch or whatever that's that's what i'm going to do is um just yeah very quickly reform education and just take a little bit of step off the accelerator a little bit and just make schools a slightly more holistic experience because i think as well there's also an issue by parents assume that teachers are doing it teachers assume that parents are doing it and very often kids crash between two stools mm. so wow Um did you see there was a documentary on the BBC with a woman who I think was in Love Island a young woman and she went into schools and talked with young people about consent mainly it's mainly about consent and and it was there is this is a recurring theme that comes up about um young men in particular being educated through pornography the right you know more and more and more through their phones the constant constant access to online representations of really dysfunctional sex is that something that you i mean that surely that should be at the top of the list you know in terms of violence against women respect consent all of those things are they getting is it is it a bigger and bigger issue the more it's cuz this documentary was overwhelming yeah. <laughs> in how depressing it was i've not i've not seen it as yet i like i write i write zara mcdermott i think she's great and i think she's the right voice for it cuz she's recognizable to the age group um I think you're right and I think there's a real there's a key issue which is there is a generational divide a quite a sincere generational divide between parents and kids now which is a 16-year-old now is what we would call a digital native in that they have always had broadband in their life and they have pretty much always had access to smartphones the first smartphones started in about 2007 and um, so parents don't get it especially if they're a little bit older which is that yes com- a conversation around rape or consent or pornography would seem shocking to us but we didn't have to come up against it mm. 
So there wasn't a need for that conversation when we were at school, whereas there is absolutely a need now. And schools have got to adapt to the reality of the situation of young people. And PSHE teachers have got to adapt to the reality of young people. And I think parents, we mustn't Pollyanna it. We can't pretend it's not happening. Um, You can't shield your children because even if you've taken every precaution around access to tablets and devices some other kid in their class does not have that safeguarding so and we are and also adults whether you're a parent or not you are not privy to every conversation the children are having with each other of course it could be a passing comment in the corridor it could be in the loose you know Mm -hmm. it's impossible to police it all Mm. exactly and and i think and like I said, that that's how misunderstandings stem. And, and I think, you know, we can't blame young men for terrible sex education. <laughs> you know, so, so, it's kind of, yeah. so it's kind of, you know, we can't, we can't demonize young men when actually we're not, we're not providing an alternative to, mm. to pornography. Um, and so that's why I think it's a crisis. And I think, mm. like I've said, such I, it's so frustrating when the answer is right there these young people with their smartphones and their pornography they go to this special building once a day five <laughs> days a week if only there was a way we could get them all in one room and just tell them oh wait there is <laughs> it's literally called a PSHE lesson well, I think Why? if they if they were missing a lesson of maths, I think you'd definitely have a big turnout there. But I, I mean, sadly, <laughs> sure. I, I don't think they're going to stop teaching every single maths lesson. So, what other subject apart from maths and English do you think would be dispensable? It's just maths. I think it's one of those things, you know. I we've because it's been taught this way for a hundred years or so. You know, we ju- we've just become kind of gaslit into thinking that maths is really important, and and I I just don't think it's more important than mm. PSHE. And, and when you look at the way the curriculum is divided up, you would think that maths, English, and science were more important than music or drama. Oh, come on, Juno. I use complex algebra every day. That is a lie. (laughs) And I know I can tell it's a lie. Um, And so I just I just think that that's the problem. So the way that the curriculum is built would make it seem that maths is more important than rape culture. And I'm not sure it is. (laughs) <laughs> um, so and the, the horrible the horrible and very serious statistic is I imagine a young woman is much more likely to be the victim of sexual assault than she is to use trigonometry yeah so um where where is that reflected in the syllabus that's a great great quote <laughs> yeah um thank you let's move on to your your second choice um can you talk us through um number two on your list so this is this is based on um something that I think is has now sort of entered the general sphere, which is, again, obviously it's nice to be able to say smash the patriarchy and let's destroy the patriarchy. But that that feels like a very big goal. I think we need small, smaller steps to get to the overall bringing down of the patriarchy. But I think a really key one would be making um, parental leave mandatory and making it mandatory for both parents um, because I still remember being on a panel um, appointing a deputy head teacher in about 2006 or something. And um, given that the panel was all women, um, our head teacher was a woman, the local authority representative was a woman, everyone on that panel was a woman of some description, including me. And 
we interviewed a 29-year-old woman who had just got married. I thought she was the best candidate by a mile. But can you guess why my headmistress wouldn't appoint her? Because she was a baby risk. And literally, I was aghast to hear them say, because in a couple of years, she'll be wanting maternity leave. And I was like, oh, okay. And at the time, I was very, very young. And certainly, so I was kind of there as the teacher representative. So I, I guess I had the least sway on the panel anywhere. I was mostly there to make up the numbers. Now I would have definitely said that's some bullshit. But because um, I did, I genuinely... Surely that's illegal, isn't it? I mean... Yeah. Also, I yeah. strongly suspect illegal. And so I think we need to get into the position where no one... Where, or rather, I should say, where particularly, because I, I think this is an issue, obviously, same-sex couples are very in the mix here, but this is an issue mostly, I guess, about paternal leave and fathers. And I think we need to get into a position where it's never less risky to hire a man than it is a woman, because otherwise there's yeah. always going to be this this slight glass ceiling with, with women of a reproductive age, kind of, Um And I spent some time, I did a tour of Denmark, where they sent me over to Denmark to promote this book is gay a few years ago, where actually paternal leave is split. So parental leave is split between both parents and and parents can choose how to divvy up their leave. And I was like, gosh, this is great. Denmark has figured it out. And this group of sort of women teachers were like, "Mm mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, (laughs) that's some doubtful noise. And they explained, well, yes, by law, parents can choose mm. how they divide their um, their parental leave. Employers put enormous pressure on fathers to not take their allowance. Mm. That They were like, oh, cool, yeah, you're entitled six months, but you're not mm. going to take six months. Like, clearly not. So do not believe everything you read. Exactly. Basically. So it was a real, so on paper, yes both parents could take like six months of paid leave to to start but actually in reality that wasn't happening at all but I just think if parental leave was when when parents have a kid if both parents just automatically get six months paid leave then I think all of a sudden it would just create it's not going to smash the patriarchy, but it would be one little inequality that would be less I, uneven. I, I actually think it would massively take the legs off of patriarchy. I think it's such a. I think it's such yeah. a, a fundamental reason why things remain unequal. Um, and I, yeah, you're absolutely right. M- making both parents take paid leave immediately eliminates a huge problem. But yeah. but what would you say to people? So there's, there's an argument around this kind of going on at the moment with Stella Creasy, mm-hmm. the MP, who is um, taking her baby into the yeah. chamber. And there's I've been looking at, the, you know, the helpful people on Twitter. <laughs> well, that was your first mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but there's that kind of line about, I, I don't have kids. Why should I support this silly bloody woman who's got a baby strapped around? You know, what what? how do you shout down those people that maybe – choose to be childless or simply don't give a shit <laughs> what you know they, I, I know that there are strong economic reasons why this is why this is also a good idea parents happier parents are more productive at work you know mm-hmm. blah 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 um 
Do you have anything like to add to that as a kind well, it of? It feels like those people on Twitter. Granted, again, that's my first mistake. But it feels like those people <laughs> yeah. on Twitter are also the first people to dress up as Spider Man and chain themselves to the side <laughs> of a building for Fathers for Justice. Yeah. And so, actually, to me, this would be a great thing because, you know, I think a lot of kids would really benefit from having both parents yeah. with them. Mm. It's a really difficult time. You know, gosh, look at rates of postpartum depression. You know, mm. you know, what if both parents were off work for six months to just be there and mm. for both parents to feel that connection with the mm. child as well? And I think, you know, I just want chihuahuas. I'm not particularly interested in having babies, but I totally accept that it would be a good thing for society if babies, you know, felt connected to their parents and that were better, you know, just better supported. Mm. And of course, mm. we also know that, you know, if populations continue to decline <laughs> in quite the same way they are doing, we're in trouble because we're a very aging population. Mm. So from a purely kind of philanthropic point of view, we do actually need people to have babies. You know, baby, <laughs> babies are what secure the smooth running of civilization, basically, yeah. and places like, for example, South Korea, are in real trouble because their birth rate is so low now. Mm. And so actually we do need to look at ways of making it easier for people to start families as well because, you know, yeah. also families are under huge financial constraints as well. So I just think... That's mm, very true. It's just, But I think a lot of people on Twitter didn't realise that Stella Creasy actually doesn't get the same parental leave because she's an yeah. MP. Yeah. So that was a big issue that came out on social media. Lots of media. people on Twitter don't realise lots of things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were people going, oh, what, so should a tube driver take their baby? I mean, it was just <laughs> yeah. becoming I comedy. I, I like the idea that somebody else could step in for Stella Creasy. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've, got to, we've got to supply Stella in for the day, kind of just like... Get a different, Stella Duffy can stand in for Stella Creasy she or something. Would be Stella, Duffy. Like, Stella Duffy could do anything. Quite you know what? Stella Duffy would be a sick Stella Creasy. But, um, <laughs> she would. But, um, just, yes, yeah, so it's one of those things. I always think, and I always say this to people when I'm working on scripts and stuff, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. And clearly we have a problem with mm. maternity leave and with paternity leave and with patriarchy. What if this was a solution? You know, mm. or what What if even if, you know, I think now the way it is, it's, it's parents can choose how to split parental leave. But actually, I think it should be made mandatory. Because, yeah, I, because, I think, it, because it's not I, working as it no, is. No, it's, it's not. It, men don't take it. No. But for all the reasons that you've just described, the pressure no. and the higher pay. Even, if it, was, even a, if it wasn't six months, you know, even if it was, you know, three months, you know, of... Mm. of mandatory leave I think initially it would be a shock to the system but I do think in the end both parents Brilliant. would really like it imagine yeah, getting yeah. to spend time with your newborn baby be nice yeah. no we should I'm I, going to send you a book Gino called Secrets of the Sprachar which is out next year written by Iceland's first lady and it is so illuminating about why Iceland is considered one of the best places to live mm -hmm. as a woman um, and it, you just think we need to just as you said small steps but just to learn, I'm not sure that we are actually open enough to learning from other nations. Mm. 
feel like sometimes it feels like we're so up ourselves and we think we know it all. I mean, like Brexit, Spoilers, which will come on We do later. not know it all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I also think we're obsessed with work, all this idea of a work ethic, which means not necessarily working hard, but being present. You know, this, yeah. the, the government are obsessed with people going back to work because homeworking seems somehow like you're shirking, which everybody knows after the last two years, people have worked really, really yeah. hard and done it on their own back and managed kids and managed older care and all that sort of stuff. So I actually advocate for all kinds of mandatory leave, including mm. period days, mental health days, which we talked about. There's a big football match on. Menopause. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Let's move on to um, your third and final change. Yeah, this, this um, one's going to go down well. Um, this, is, this is just a, it's a personal one, but I think I feel quite aggrieved about Brexit. <laughs> That is a very mild term for it. <laughs> because so this is the thing. So on, on a purely emotive level, I really miss being part of something bigger. I, I liked being part of something that gave me choices. You know, yeah. I, I loved, you know, there was a point a while ago when my friends were so spread out over the EU. You know, I had my friend Fee living in Madrid. I had my friend Bilal living in Berlin. My friend Finlay's in Zurich. And I really liked that we had all of Europe as our mm. playground. I thought that was mm. a good thing. And in my mind, I was like, if I can go and choose to work in Lisbon, then I think someone from Lisbon should be able to come and work mm on this rainy little rock, if that is what they so <laughs> choose to do. Mm. Um, and so I just didn't see the issue with that. I certainly didn't feel that sense of the invasion that seemed to so mark, you know, the, the Vote Leave yeah. campaign, which I think really played on, not necessarily race, but a very xenophobic fear, this fear mm. of people people are coming for your wives and children, kind of, and, and that never sat right with me. And that really leads me to my sort of the second big grievance, which is just this feeling that four years on, five years on, actually, from that becursed vote, it just feels like a massive chunk of the electorate were deceived. And I think everyone recognises that now. Mm -hmm. But a lot of garbage got said during that campaign by vote leave and which Dominic Cummings has admitted lots of politicians have admitted the big red NHS bus was a big fat lie you know there was so there was so much misinformation and you know we're starting to see now things get gradually worse the cost of living is escalating Northern Ireland is in trouble literally the peace process in Northern Ireland is in trouble the fish you know, are no happier in the Scottish seas than they were five years ago. So all that stuff that people were fed during the Vote Leave campaign was just garbage. And so it just feels like, you know, if, if I was to say to somebody, so, you know, what good do you think Brexit has done? All people can really say sovereignty. And, you know, well, what does that mean? You know, mm. tell, tell me what, what material change has this sovereignty made to your life? And so I just think that the things we lost were far, far greater than the things we've gained. Mm. And, and I, you know, I'm sure it wouldn't be a popular move, but on the day that, again, the day that I become a high priestess, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> reversing it. I'm just turning back the yeah. clock and I'm saying... I can't think of anything popular. we have gained. I, I honestly think, can't. And I did, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't face doing it on Twitter. But, you know, I, I did sort of ask, you know, what, 
What have we gained? And again, people just said sovereignty. But that, again, I think was based on mistruths, this notion that there were bureaucrats in the EU, like saying what size our bananas were. You know, every single one of those myths has been solidly disproved. Some people made varied points about the vaccine, that we were very able to move very swiftly on developing vaccines and rolling out vaccines. But had the UK been in the EU, then possibly the UK would have cracked whips within the EU Mm. to get the vaccines rolled out faster. Um, I think it was acknowledged that the EU dragged its feet on vaccine rollout, but actually has kind of caught up now, I think, in lots of regards. Um, So I will will doff my cap and say that actually we, we did get vaccines rolled out really, really quickly in the pandemic. But beyond that, no, I'm, I'm turning it, turning the clock back. I think clearly, you know, there was possibly space to negotiate with the EU about the kind of the powers that we have here and the powers they have there. But to do that, I don't think we needed to leave the EU. No. I think it was it was a marriage it was a marriage guidance situation, not a divorce situation. Yeah, I, think- <laughs> I agree. I think it's really odd as well. I mean, each of us have a job to do, and if we made all these claims that we're going to do this, and then actually didn't do any of it, we'd be sacked, right? So how has this still carried on? There's so well, many be- promises. It made. became emblematic. Then getting Brexit done is yeah. the thing that Boris still says when they, you know, when people say, "What is the point of you? I got Brexit done," and it's like, <sighs> yeah, but nothing good. Yeah, nothing mi- good happened. Well, yes, yes, well, it happened. Yeah, what does it mean? No one really knows what that means anymore. No. And, but what it has become is a kind of lightning rod for polarism, yeah. you know, polarity and argument. And it's not about politics anymore. It's about culture Slow, and slogans of- and i think we saw that with make america great again as well which is this general kind of memification of politics right where you take yeah. something incredibly complicated like mm. trade arrangements with an entire block and reduce it to get brexit done which doesn't mm. mean a thing to anyone's mm. life materially um, and that that's a real worry because you know, weirdly, there's a plot in succession about this at the moment as well, that will our, will our politicians just become increasingly banal in order to win cheap votes? And, you know, we are seeing this across Europe with with similar sort of demagogue leaders like Viktor Orban and, you know, mm. Marie Le Pen and stuff like that. These kind of very sort of Trump-esque populists who, again, and, and I, again, I think um, social media has a lot to answer for. Mm. And actually, had had there been great controls over Facebook and Twitter during the leave, again, things might have been very different. They shouldn't yeah. have been able to print the kind of things they let fly on social media accounts. And again, that's something, you know, clearly Dominic Cummings is a troubled individual, but... Um, <laughs> He has since obviously burned the bridges, burned all the bridges and kind of very much kind of shown what was happening behind the magician's curtain. And yeah, it was, it was all, it was all lies. Mm. Yeah. How has it affected your friends? Are they, you know, has it affected them in? One came back, one was, so my friend Fee wasn't able to live in Madrid anymore. Um, so she, they've come back. The rest of them have stayed where they are just because they'd been there for so long that they were able mm. to get like sponsorship through their employers and stuff like that. So they've been fine. But so for me now, it would be really difficult. I mean, a lot of people are saying that, you know, for me as an individual, I would 
I, I'm like an alien of extraordinary ability because a bit like Stella Creasy, there is only one Juno Dawson. So, so there was a weird possibility actually just before the pandemic that I was going to have to go work in LA for a while. And, and they were just like, you don't need to worry about, you don't need to worry about your visa because we can't hire an American to be Juno Dawson. You know, mm. we just need you. So I'm in a very lucky position, but most people aren't. And I just think it's sad for kids. I think, you know, Erasmus has gone, you know, yeah, I think it's a real it's shame because, you know, when I was a teenager, I wasn't particularly interested in travel, but so many of my friends were, so many of my friends mm. wanted to mm. live and work across the EU. And now it's so much harder for them to do so. Mm. Um, I don't want us to end on Brexit because, you know, <laughs> it's a massive... What a downer, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I want instead to think to, it's almost the end of the year. Are you a news resolutions kind of girl? And if so, what are your plans for next year? I'm not, not work-wise, yeah, like, you know, Juno-wise. It's tricky. I would like to, you know, the, the pandemic was a funny old time. Um, mm. I was a mess for a lot of it. I think it's only now that it's funny, obviously, just this, this week, you know, we're talking again about new variants. And it was, I felt very triggered. I felt like it was a flashback to kind of much earlier in the pandemic and that kind right. of dread of life as we know it might you know, might grind to a halt. And so I do, I, I still have very real fears about, you know, the, the L word, the L word, the lockdown word, you know, and, and the fear, because I was very unhappy during lockdown. I was not, I was not in a good place being separated right. from my friends and family. And, you know, right. my, my poor husband bore a lot of my poor mental health during that time, you know, because I sort of, there was nobody else for me to really vent at. Yeah. Um, and he was able to kind of ease into it in a way that I just wasn't kind of, he, he's much more able to roll with the punches than I am. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I fear that. So, I, I mean, I think as much as possible, kind of just try to enjoy, enjoy our freedoms while we have them. Cause if, if we've learned one thing, it's that, you know, we shouldn't really take our freedoms for granted. Mm. Um, so just celebrate every moment. Yeah. Just as you would. Just with a new see book. my friends, um, as much as possible. Um, it's quite nice when a nice was having got married this year, it's quite nice to not have a project um, mm. because the wedding was that project. And before that we bought a house and then basically, so we, we moved into our new house and then almost immediately went into the pandemic. So it felt there was always something. And that wedding planning for you sounded so stressful. It was, I remember you it talking was absolute about bullshit. It. Yeah. Do not get married during the pandemic. Just <laughs> kick it, kick it into the long grass. But the problem is we, it was, we'd already committed to caterers mm. and stuff. So it was a bit of a nightmare, but, um, it's done now. And so it's really nice to not have a project. It's really nice to not have to worry about moving house or, you know, lockdown, we hope, or, mm. or getting married. So I think yeah, next year I would like a quiet year. I'm, I'm going to try really hard to come off Twitter. Um, it's a right. toxic, toxic environment, especially for trans people. So I'm going to try so hard between January and when the book comes out in July, I'm going to try have a complete detox. Great, like a six month, like a six month detox. Let's see. I'm going to give. I'm going to get my friend. I've got one of my lovely friends is going to change the password, so I'm not even going to okay. be able to log in. Brilliant. So I'm, if we see you on there, we'll come around and sort you out. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, maybe there's a burning need, but my friend, so my friend Samantha <laughs> is going to have the login. So if there's some urgent news mm. about like, woo, like Wonderland is coming to television, you know, I, I will still be able to communicate with my readers because that is really important. But I just need, I need to get off the dread cycle. Mm. There's always, there's always it, something so- like such a black hole isn't it oh it's, it's horrible just what what are we saying about trans people today what what yeah. what how are we ending civilization this week you know kind yeah. of um so yeah it's it's now fun at the moment so i'm going good. away <laughs> good sorry you're going away but good <laughs> that's great thank you <laughs> thank you so much for coming on our podcast today it's been an absolute pleasure to talk thank with you. you thank you and we hope to have you back on when wonderland hits our screen <gasps> fingers crossed yeah, yeah good luck with it thank all thank you take Bye. care thanks dino world as it should be from prima donna the world as it should be from prima donna